All right. Uh, one, one other announcement. Uh, following the service this morning, we, we have started back up Sunday school. Sunday school has taken place in the fellowship hall right next door. That starts at 11.15. But down in the gym, there is coffee and goodies, and that's just set up for kind of an open-ended fellowship time. So don't run off after the service. Uh, go grab something to drink, something to eat, and would love to catch a minute with you down there for sure. All right, well, let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew 5. We are working our way through the Beatitudes. Uh, the Beatitudes are these eight statements that Jesus, is make, Jesus makes at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he does them uh, really right there at the beginning, and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount really is sort of an exploration of these eight statements. He kind of goes deeper as you go deeper into the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, but he begins by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are who um, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on Jesus' account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets before you. That last little bit he adds is commentary, but a lot of people include it, so I will as well. <laughs> this morning we come to the fifth beatitude which is, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The first question we have to ask in studying this beatitude is, what is mercy? And first of all, I think we can dismiss right away any idea that mercy, at least insofar as the Bible defines it, means that we are easygoing, or that we sweep things under the rug, Sweet bad behavior under the rug. And one of the reasons why I feel so confident dismissing those kinds of ideas about what it is to be merciful is because in our Bible, God himself is described as merciful. For example, in Deuteronomy 4.31, it says, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. So, whatever we decide merciful means, we are saying that this is true of God. And of course, the perfectly righteous, holy, 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 judge on high, does not smile at sin. He did not sweep our sin under the rug. If we think of mercy as coming at the expense of truth and God's righteous standards, it is not true mercy at all. Some people have defined mercy in relationship to grace, saying that if grace consists of giving a person what they don't deserve, which is our hope before God, right? That God is not giving us what we deserve. What he is giving us is something we didn't deserve, didn't earn. That is grace. Then mercy is not giving something to somebody that they oh so richly deserve, <laughs> right? That's mercy as opposed to grace. I kind of like that. That's a good, I think, starting point maybe for understanding the, this idea, it's true, but maybe there is even more, a little more to it than that. Uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he writes this. He says, grace is especially associated with men in their sins, 
Mercy is especially associated with men in their misery. In other words, while grace looks down upon sin as a whole, mercy looks especially on the miserable consequences of sin. And I, I don't know if I, I, I really like that idea. It, it sort of changes my perspective just a little bit to understand more fully what mercy is. Because mercy is not just simply a matter of staying the hand. It's not just a matter of withholding what somebody so richly deserves, but it is a heart motivation in staying the hand. Uh, as I said to you, as we move through the Beatitudes, they do get progressively harder. Not only do they naturally follow one another, but they do get progressively harder. And Jesus is very bossy. <laughs> he not only compels our conduct, but a heart to go with it. He demands that we have a heart to go with the command. And mercy is not only describing outward conduct, as we understand what the Bible says about mercy, it is also talking about a heart posture, a heart attitude, a way of feeling that gives birth to what we're doing. And so to be merciful in the way that the Bible would call us to do, it involves, of course, not giving somebody what they deserve, but he's actually asking for something even more than that. He's commanding something more than that. In Luke 1, Zechariah, in his song, which we're actually going to be studying here in a few weeks, he says this, describing the coming of Jesus into the world. Because of the tender mercy of our God, there's that word mercy, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This mercy of our God, described by Zechariah, is depicting God as looking down on man in his pitiful condition as the result of sin and wrongdoing and having pity on him. So what mercy really means, I think, it is an inner compassion or pity for the suffering of others, plus a desire to relieve their suffering. The essential meaning of being merciful is to extend pity, help, and forgiveness to someone when it is within your power to take vengeance, exercise your legal rights, or do them harm. Uh, years ago, when I was working at Camp Maranatha in Southern California, they had a group call us and they said, we want to uh, have a work day for some of our small groups. And we know about your ministry, your camping ministry. We would love to come up and just take care of some physical stuff around the camp, kind of like a Camp Nomaka work day. And we said, boy, that sounds great. We have got tons of projects. Send them up. They will regret this for sure, is what we were thinking. So my job was around our main parking lot, we had these big Italian cypress trees. I think that's what they were, but they had these really heavy branches that were not designed to take snow load. And we got snow in those mountains where we lived. So the problem was they'd get snow on them, they'd crack and break off and land on people's cars. So the job I was going to give people was to teach them how to use a pole saw. So <laughs> imagine the scene. Uh, there's about 20 young people there, and I'm showing them how to use a pole saw, which, you know... <laughs> And I'm like pulling on this branch, I'm cutting this branch, which is not complicated, by the way. But then the branch kind of broke, and it came off the tree, it landed, and did like this spring thing, and then leapt across the parking lot, directly into the side of a brand new Toyota pickup truck. <laughs> Boom. 
I mean, and I looked at the kids and I was go, that's not how you're supposed to do it. <laughs> but honestly, who could have imagined that this would happen? It just went, broop, broop. So I gave them the pole saws and I said, I have to go find somebody. And I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know how this would get paid for. I just was, I went to the man, I found him. I said, here's what happened. He walked down and he just said, our God is a merciful God. And that's it. <laughs> now, I did not deserve that. Guys, would he have been within his rights to ream me out? Yes. He would have been within his rights to demand I pay for the damage to his truck. He was within his rights. It would have been right and good. I was wrong. He was right. But he was merciful. Aren't you glad that God is, God is a God of justice? He is a God of righteous standards. Aren't you glad that he is also merciful? Amen. Amen. This mercy of our God, described by Zechariah, again, is depicting God looking down on man in his pitiful condition as the result of our rebellion. He is the offended party. We are the offenders. We have sinned, broken his laws. He is totally right. We are totally wrong. But it says, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. I want to get further in this, but the first thing I have to do, and, and just extend me some, uh, some patience here, is I have to do away with a very problematic idea that has emerged in the minds of some. The way that this is worded lends itself to some people seeing in it uh, almost something that reverses the doctrine of grace. You know, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says um, to forgive, to the same extent that you forgive others, you will be forgiven. Or here where it says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Is this saying that you will be shown mercy to the extent that you show mercy? Is this saying that after all that talk about grace and about your salvation resting on what Jesus did, not what you've done, about the great gospel truth, that we bring nothing to this table but our need, is it now turned on its head and Jesus said, well, now, actually, to the extent, to the degree that you show mercy to others, I'll show mercy to you to that same extent. Is that what it is saying? Uh, one, one verse I want to share with you is this, uh, Titus 3.5. Let me turn there. Titus 3.5 says this, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. So how does that relate to this saying, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy? I think what Jesus is saying is that we are not truly forgiven 
We are only truly forgiven when we are truly repentant. To be truly repentant means that I deserve nothing but punishment. And the incredible fact that I am forgiven, that my enormous sin debt has been canceled, that he looked in this dent on the side of his divine Toyota and said, I am merciful. This is something that can only be attributed to the love of God and to his mercy and grace and to nothing else at all. And if someone is truly repentant and truly realizes their position before God and realizes that they are only forgiven in that way, then of necessity they will be people who forgive those who trespass against them. So being merciful is a proof and a product that a person has truly received mercy, and it should never be understood as the means by which mercy is obtained. Consider these words of Jesus describing the day of his return. It's a fairly lengthy portion of Scripture, but bear with me. It says in Matthew 25, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And then he speaks to those on his left. He says, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, As you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I don't know if you've ever thought about this passage in this way, but he is describing here acts of mercy. This is what he's describing. When he says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. He is describing here those who have shown themselves to be like the God who saved them. Really, the whole point of all creation, the the whole point of it all is that God would be glorified in the midst of the world that he made. And by glorified, I mean that his excellence, the wonderful truth of who he is, would be put on display in the midst of the world that he made. And so in the church, his activity in our lives and in our church is to put who he is on display in us. And so when he says, blessed are the merciful, happy are those who behave like me. He is here describing acts of mercy that have their beginning really in how God dealt with us. 
And those who have truly received and understood that so behave towards others around them. We were once hungry, and God gave us the bread of life. We were thirsty, and God gave us the living water. We were estranged from God, alienated, far off, but God welcomed us and took us in through Christ. We were naked with nothing but the rags of our sinfulness to cover our shame, but God dressed us richly in the righteousness of Christ. We were sick with a terminal hereditary illness passed down to us from our first parents, Adam and Eve. We were imprisoned, caught in the chains of sin and death, and Jesus visited us in that awful place. He was called Emmanuel, God with us. And more than just visit us, he took our place. All of God's wrath poured out on him. When he died on the cross, all our sins died with him. And when he rose again victorious, we were raised into newness of life with him. And now Jesus holds the keys to the place where we were all formerly imprisoned. So we were naked. We were hungry. We were thirsty. We were imprisoned. We were lonely. We were sick. And, the, and Jesus, God, who is mercy, came and visited us in the midst of all those afflictions. We have been shown such kindness and mercy from God. He has visited us in all of our sufferings. He took action to relieve that suffering. And of course, these days remain full of suffering, but we are blessed to have purpose, not despair in the midst of it. And we have a future hope. 1 Peter 1.6 says, So be truly glad there is wonderful joy ahead, even though you have to endure many trials for a little while. We look forward to the day. God has been merciful to us, and what Matthew 25 makes clear is that those who belong to God will share in his nature by being merciful to others in the midst of their sufferings. I think probably when we talk about mercy and being merciful, maybe the most critical thing to understand about somebody who is generally unmerciful. Imagine somebody uh, who is generally unmerciful. They are unforgiving. They are full of harsh judgments. They feel no pity for the suffering of others, especially if they suspect that person brought their suffering upon themselves. When we think of such a person, what, I, what we have to understand about that person is that they are not this way primarily because they see others incorrectly, but because they do not see themselves very well at all. That is the root of their unmerciful spirit. I think this is one of the most critical things to realize about being a merciful person or about what makes an unmerciful person tick. They seem very clear-eyed about the faults of others. <laughs> and I don't think necessarily they see other people incorrectly. Their problem is that they do not understand themselves. To be sure, they are not completely clear-eyed toward others' faults. They do have a flawed view of others. But it is important that we understand that for such a person, they are unable to see others rightly because they are viewing all things through the broken, foggy prism of self. 
Their problem is not that they view other people as bad. Their problem is that they think that they're good. This was the idea behind Jesus' words in Matthew 7, 3 through 5. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye, you hypocrite? First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What is needed uh, to become a merciful person is to have the eyes of my heart opened so that I see my own neediness and my own sinfulness before God so that I then look upon fellow man in his sufferings with humble pity rather than arrogant contempt. The gospel, when it is rightly understood and embraced, it destroys all human pretense and any notion of human superiority. And it teaches us to love others not because of their merit, but because of who we are in Christ. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but in Philippians 2, 3 through 11, it says, uh, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. In other words, it doesn't say, see or perceive that they are better than you. <laughs> it says, consider them better. Think of them as being better, as giving preferential treatment to them. This is behind the very spirit of being merciful. We see this idea of mercy uh, being very clearly illustrated in Matthew 18, uh, beginning in verse 21. You might know the story already if you've been warming a pew for a while, but if you're brand new to it, that's also fine. Peter is one of Jesus's disciples. He's kind of the head disciple in a way. Uh, we love Peter because he always says the quiet part out loud. He's, just, he's the guy who speaks what we're all thinking, you know. Peter came up to Jesus and he asks him a question. He says, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. One of the things that I, I love to think about in connection with this verse is I think Peter probably thinks he's being magnanimous. Have you ever had somebody make a statement in the form of a question? <laughs> when he comes up to Jesus and says, how many times must I forgive somebody who's sinning against me? Seven times? I don't think he's really, this is my personal take, I don't think Peter is making an honest inquiry. I don't think he's really trying to define the parameters I think he's trying to say, look how magnanimous and merciful a person I am. Seven times I'm willing to do this, Jesus. I'm kind of like you, huh? <laughs> I think what he's saying. According to Jewish religious tradition, it was commonly understood by folks within that tradition at that time that a person was obligated to forgive repeated sins three times. But if someone sinned against you a fourth time, then there was no requirement to forgive them. And they'd come to believe this based on a, I think, a misinterpretation of some verses in the book of Amos. However, Peter has grasped something of Jesus' compassionate heart for sinners. It goes beyond what he, as an observant Jew, had been taught was required. And he generously suggests that perhaps a person should be given for, for, forgiven up to seven times. 
And here again, I think he thinks he's being a real big-hearted hero. But Jesus wants to radically reorient Peter's thinking away from the narrow legalistic demands of Jewish law and its emphasis on what a person was obligated to do to something much bigger, more expansive, and much, much closer to God's heart. Peter had suggested seven times, but Jesus says, no, not seven times, Peter, but 70 times seven. He's not, placing Peter's num- he's not replacing Peter's number with a bigger number. He is rejecting the idea of numbering sins altogether. This is a rejection of the calculating, quantitative approach to forgiveness that he had been taught his whole life. 1 Corinthians 13.5 says, Love keeps no record of wrongs. Peter's question betrays the fact that he was seeking to find a limit to his duty. By asking the question, how many times must I forgive? Isn't he revealing something about his heart that he wished to do no more good than what was required? Tell me, how much do I have to do? (laughs) With his answer, 70 times 7, Jesus is not pointing Peter toward a more accurate cap on forgiveness requirements. But unbelievably, he is saying love keeps no record of wrongs, Peter. Stop keeping count. Be merciful as your God is merciful. Forgive as often as you are sinned against. What if God cut you off after your seventh sin? (laughs) That's it. I gave you seven tries. You're done. We're called to be merciful as God is merciful. Wow. What does this mean? And then to ram his point home, Jesus tells Peter a parable, a story. He says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that servant, that same servant, went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I'll pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The story begins with a king who has, who has appointed a day to settle accounts with his servants. We've been told that such a day is coming for us also, haven't we? Luke 12, 2 through 3, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms 
shall be proclaimed on the housetops. A servant is brought before the king who is found to owe him the astounding sum of 10,000 talents. A talent was the largest denomination of currency in the ancient world. A single talent, just one, was roughly equal to 20 years' wages for a common laborer. And this one, well, he owes 10,000 talents. The amount owed was in the millions of dollars, kajillions, I don't know. I'm not good at math. 200,000 years worth of wages is what he owes. This guy has danced, and now it's time to pay the fiddler. After years of playing fast and loose with the king's money, he finds himself standing before the throne. There is an enormous discrepancy in the books. The king pronounces his judgment. This man cannot repay the amount. You can't get blood from a stone. But the king, he says, let's recoup at least a little of the loss. Let's sell him and his family and all his possessions into slavery. The servant falls before the king. He's blubbering. He's pitiable. He begs for mercy. Have patience with me and I'll pay you everything, he says. What an absurd statement. But amazingly, the king, moved with compassion, agrees to take the 10,000 talents on the chin to absorb the loss himself and forgive the man his debt. This 10,000 talents, this astronomical, hopelessly unattainable sum of money, represents our own sin debt before the Lord. And in fact, our sins are described in precisely this way as a debt in the Bible. In Colossians 2, 13 through 14, we read, And you who were dead in your sins, God made alive through Jesus, having forgiven all our sins by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. We all stand before the throne of our king with an enormous discrepancy in the books. I mean, 10,000 talents of sin debt hanging over my head like the sword of Damocles. There is no way out from under it. I am hopelessly lost. And then amazingly, God just says, I'm nailing, I'm setting that aside, I'm nailing it to the cross. But then this same servant went out from the presence of the king. He encounters another servant who owed him a hundred denarii. And it says he starts to choke the man, demand immediate payment. The fellow servant pleaded with him using the exact same language that the first servant had used before the king. Have patience with me, I'll repay you. But the first servant did not forgive the man as he had been forgiven, but had him thrown into jail. One quick word here. Uh, I was leading a group of teenagers one time, a long time ago, and we came to this part of the story, and there was a girl in the group um, who had an unforgiving heart towards a man uh, because the man had horribly um, trespassed against her and her siblings. And she snorted at this part of the story, and she said that her, this man's sins against her were no 100 denarii. Of course, she was saying that the man's debt in the story was no big deal. 100 denarii, that must mean something trivial. 
But she was saying that the, the sins that had been committed against her were a much bigger deal, and therefore she was justified in withholding forgiveness. This is no hundred denarii we're talking about. So it's important for us to understand that in truth, a denarius was equal to a day's wage. And a hundred denarii were 100 days wages. That is no small sum of money. Jesus is not saying that the second man's debt was insignificant or trivial or easy to set aside. That is not the point of this part of the story. He was saying that as bad and weighty and significant as a hundred denarii debt is, it pales in comparison to 10,000 talents which had been forgiven the first servant. And when word reaches the king, he is furious. He calls the unforgiving servant before him and says, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? In the parable, the unforgiving servant had foolishly appealed to the king that if given time, he could somehow repay his enormous debt. This really does reveal something about this particular man. He really does not grasp the full enormity of his debt. Do you guys remember our discussion about the very first beatitude? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means to live in a state of needy reliance on God. It means that you die to any notion of the fact that you can repay. This is lacking in this man. He pridefully imagined that it was within his ability and resources to pay this debt back in his own efforts if he had enough time. Such a person does not understand the enormity of their debt, that it is far, far beyond their abilities and resources to repay, even if they had 200,000 years to work at it. Such a person mistakenly believes that given more time and more effort, they can improve themselves and thereby pay down their debt. However, given more years, they would only multiply their sins all the more. They don't need more time or more effort, they need a savior. And the second thing that is revealed about this man is that he is apparently motivated solely by a fear of punishment that is not accompanied by any remorse or a contrite heart for what he had done. And here we're reminded of the second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, who grieve their sin, for they shall be comforted. Unfortunately, even believers will continue to sin after coming to Christ, of course, but because we've been transformed into a new creation through Christ, our lives are now marked by a growing love for righteousness, an uncomfortable conviction and remorse for sin in our lives. By refusing to forgive his fellow servant, even though he made the same appeal to him that he himself had made before the king, the unforgiving servant reveals that he is unrepentant. He's unrepentant, and therefore, because he never truly received and understood, embraced the mercy that had been extended to him, he is unmerciful to others. He is not transformed by the act of mercy that had been shown to him into someone who is like the God who saved him. Now, here at the end of this time, I I just feel like we need to make the observation as we close our time together, 
that as we've worked our way through the Beatitudes, we have seen how they naturally follow one another. And here we come to somebody who has shown an incredible amount of mercy, but who does not, as a prerequisite, possess poverty of spirit. He does not grieve his sin. He is not meek towards others. He has no love for righteousness. He does not hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so he is profoundly unmerciful towards others. What Jesus is doing in putting the Beatitudes in this order is he is describing what it is to be a Christian. He is describing what a Christian is like in their spirit, what a Christian is like in the way that they live and navigate their way through the fallen world, the way that they live in relationship to God and to their fellow man. And of course, hinging on top of all of that is, uh, underneath all of that is the gospel. The gospel is the simple truth that says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single last one of us in this room stands before the throne of the king with an enormous, unpayable sin debt. We are all buried alive under the staggering debt of our sins that can never be repaid. And Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, but then it says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is an incredibly merciful thing that is being offered to us. God is saying, I will set aside the debt. I will take it on the chin. I will absorb the loss. In fact, that's what Jesus does on the cross. He absorbs the loss. He does not sweep sin under the rug. He does not smile on your many sins. He does not wink and say, it's okay. Jesus took all of it onto himself. That's how important and severe sin is to our God. And he wants you to know that you cannot work at it. Romans 5.8 says this, but God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. <laughs> he, he took that loss on the chin when we were up to our eyeballs in sin debt. You can't work your way out of this thing. And this is available to anyone and everyone. Romans 10.9, Romans 10.13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. And this is available to any and all of us. But what this is telling us is that when, when we really truly have understood the gospel, when we understand the enormity of what Jesus did for us, when we understand grace and mercy, this will have a transformative effect on our lives. And what Jesus is inviting us to do here, I think, is to take stock of our inner world. Take a look there. Soberly assess your heart towards those who have done you wrong. Is there mercy there? Or is there a, a harsh demanding that they pay up? Uh, this, is a, um, this is a difficult place to come to, I think, at the end of our service. Um, but I, I just felt led of the Lord to leave it right there. Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. 
And so I think I'm walking away from this just uh, interested to continue that conversation with God in the quiet places of my heart to show me if there is any place where I need to work further on this.